What's up, Kelly? How's it going, my friend? Mr. Greg, it's going good. It's nice to connect with you. Uh, you and I have had some chats by the by about our TFC past and a little bit about um, your experience working on uh, a mod for Half-Life 2 based on TFC called Fortress Forever. Um, and I'm really interested in just hearing from you a little bit about that because I think that you probably have some interesting uh, anecdotes to share and, uh, well, I think it's pretty cool. The last time you were playing Planetside, do you want to start up the game again so we can get back into the feel? Right. Yeah, Planetside. <laughs> so you know, one of the things that um, I was talking with uh, Matt and Taylor um, last weekend about this, one of the things about Planetside that I love is it's a game that's given me the closest, like, kind of feeling that I used to have when I played Team Fortress Classic, um, where it's like, there's a community of people that you see like all the time and you have your rivalries and you have your allies and like there's a whole like kind of teenage gang component. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's the whole thing that ended when Modern Warfare 2 came out and then there was no more game servers and everything was just online, click, match, make, and go. But yeah, why did that happen? Side was, it was Modern Warfare 2, I think. Didn't that start it? Or the first one, maybe? You could be right, honestly. That was like the canary in the coal mine for... Will gamers on PC let us control the experience from top to bottom? Right. Instead of running their own servers and doing that that whole thing. Yeah, because now every shooter or action game that comes out where there's like a like an instanced kind of mode where you go for 30 minutes or 15 minutes or until you get to the end of the railway, whatever. Um, these are all hosted by game companies now, and there's no way for you to get in there and like change the experience around whereas it, back in the day when you and i butted heads playing team fortress classic um we were the ones who were hosting the servers yeah now games are single player online only <laughs> it's the opposite of but yeah i mean we it's 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 just a big change i guess but it's not been completely i mean it's not that way everywhere it's still like minecraft is wildly popular and it's made a name for itself with all the mods and stuff that the community makes. So it's still around. It's just kind of a weird dichotomy, I guess, now, where there's all these big games that are doing it. Yeah, Call that game's Duty a phenomenon. Way. Yeah, yeah, I play Minecraft with my daughter. We're getting way off topic, though, aren't we? <laughs> oh, it's all good, man. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, we'll, we'll start back with Fortress Forever. I mean, we started working on that way before. Like, you, you read the recent criticism in the Catacombs Discord about the old TFC guys complaining about it, but... Yeah, I've seen that. I've scratched my head a little bit. Um, <laughs> like, I guess it's want? funny. Yeah, it, it's funny. Like I, okay. So my impression as a hardcore old school TFC player, I quit TFC like in two thousand five, um, and Fortress Forever came out in I think two thousand seven. So there was a two year gap for me coming back to it. But I was pretty excited about it. And I, when I got into it, the feeling that I had is, oh my god, this is like a really great feeling game that actually feels like Team Fortress Classic. You know you know, 1.5. I know that's confusing because that's technically what it was called already. But um, and yeah, it well, felt TF2. smooth. Like, I remember yeah. how, I remember being like, okay, but are, are rocket jumps and conks going to feel right? Is bunny hopping going to feel right? Is ramp sliding going to work? And every single point, I was like, check, check, check. Like, wow. Yeah. I mean, at the end, Kyle and I did fish Kyle project lead when we launched Fortress Forever. We probably pushed like for the last few months just getting all of that stuff dialed in. He and I did a lot of just him and I playing around with the dev builds. We had variables for all of those, you know, like every single thing you could control, or sorry, everything you could do in the game was controlled by 
console variables that you could add, you could basically have archon to the server and change on the fly as many as many of them as possible you could do on the fly which was possible in source not before in the half-life one engine i think so it took a long time to get it tweaked the way that we wanted it and the idea of course like you said was to do a tfc 1.5 there was no tf2 tf2 was vaporware when we started the project right yeah it was brotherhood of arms yeah that then that was not going to be a game that any one of us wanted to play in the way that it was being shown at the time which we obviously had no idea what it was going to become so you can consider like the community had done so much on our own already at that point so there was a project it was under wraps for a long time before it was ever announced obviously so there were some guys that have been working on kind of continuing you know having continuity for the team fortress community after tfc was waning right so we had people that were putting that project together sort of stealthily and planning on using the source SDK, but that got delayed again as well. So like the whole thing was, it was all delayed after delayed of just not, you know, being able to start the project in a timely fashion. But then we did get things underway and it got into much more active development around that same time frame that you're mentioning from 2004 to 2007, basically. So it took about the Half-Life three release. years to, to like, basically once, once you guys could be able to get your hands on the SDK, it sounds like you were just going great guns on it. Is that right? Yeah, and we were worried that if things were going to be successful, we didn't want to reuse any of the the assets from Half-Life 2 or from anything else. So that was another big thing is we wanted to build it all from scratch, which again, like I mentioned in the Catacombs Discord briefly, we, we were probably like biting a... off more than we should have. We, we bit off more than we could chew insofar as we had to hire people to do all of, you know, everything. All the sound was all custom. You know, everything was made. Music, sound textures, models, everything. It was it was completely from the ground up with its own game. Like if you were to do this now, like you see Black Mesa selling their game for 20 bucks or whatever, like we would have been in that same boat had we developed it now. At that time, it was the end of the modding community, right? Mods were over. Yeah. And it was switching to this current, the Steam 2.0 platform, you know, with the Steam, the modern Steam as it, as we know it, was sort of evolving at that time as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talking about Steam, uh, one of the things I learned about you recently is that you have a four-digit Steam ID. We were testing that early on. I mean, at that time, as you probably know, 404, the clan I was in, and TFC was active in testing stuff for Valve as it related to TFC. So it was only natural that we would go and get on the early TFC Steam beta because I think sure. in the beginning they were trying that and Counter-Strike, right, as the first two, probably Half-Life DM or whatever. Sure. They were releasing so we, those in Steam. Can we actually back this up, like, just a few steps? So... I'm trying to put together the picture in my mind of like like Dosepack, the 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 fortress player. Like you've from hearing everything you're saying, it's it's so it's really clear that you had a huge amount of involvement. Like for me, I'm 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 kind of more a part of this franchise as like a like a fan and community member. Like I, you know, I ran I ran my clan. I ship posted a lot in the cesspool and the catacombs, but um, you were around, I think, both before and after I stopped playing, started and stopped playing TFC. So maybe uh, I'm curious, how did you even like get into TFC in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. We, my friends and I were all playing Half-Life when it came out. So I think at one point they released, you know, the TFC patch for Half-Life, which basically added the game or the TFC mod to this the like game, your, to your like one. IRL friends or people you played yeah, online yeah. already. Gotcha. Yeah, real life. Really, friends mostly. I think at that point. Um, yeah, and when this happened, form... it would have been the late '90s, and there was no way to really connect with people online to, to yeah, do this kind so of stuff. It was always your IRL friends. '98 and then 2000, I think April of sorry '99. It was '98 '99 timeframe. But yeah, exactly. We were all 
sneaker netting CDs or what have that been? Yeah, I guess it would have been CDs at that point of the yeah. patches to each other. But uh, yeah, no. So we were, you know, you're on dial up and you have to download this huge patch for the game and the game doesn't auto update, right? You're just trying to play. If you tried to play online, you just got an error that the <laughs> your game doesn't match the version on the server. <laughs> go, get, go get fucked. What does that mean? So you're like, oh crap, I better like, I don't even know. I don't remember exactly. There may have been like an HTTP redirect to get you to a website to download the patch from like the one network or something at that time. I don't even remember it. Like, yeah, how did we get one. patches in the early days of the internet? You just manually remember. had to go down and find it somewhere and then run it on your computer, right? Yeah, for me, the way I remember that kind of stuff working is like, like I, I, I started playing in TFC public servers, like, because the game just was interesting to me. And Half-Life 1 mods were the only thing that, things I could play on the shitty dial-up dial connection I had at the time. And for this would have been 2001 for me when I would have been getting into it. Oh wow! So you came later. Well, you're younger than me. Yeah, so that makes sense. yeah, yeah. Um, I was I was part of um, like I, I missed the whole first wave of of competitive TFC. Um, and uh, but yeah. Um, so I played it, and then I saw clans in the server, and then I I, I just bugged them. I'm like, hey, your clan seems cool. Can I join? They're like, oh, download this program, uh, IRC Internet Relay Chat, and come chat with us there. And that's kind of where the whole the whole community started opening up, and you learned about where to download patches. But other than that, I have no recollection. Yeah, we we basically got on, got TFC, and we didn't know anything. I didn't even know like what the maps were or anything. Like you just kept on playing the same. You know, it was like Well Rock Two, Two Fort, and Badlands. Haunted. Badlands wasn't out then. At the, in the beginning, it was Well Two Fort, Rock Two, and Haunted. Right. Might have been one more. I think that was it though. Then right. community maps came out soon afterwards. But uh, no, so we we played that. I I really got into it when there was a. Uh, the PC game magazine, PCXL, PC Accelerator at the time, was around for a couple of years. Uh, we we on the PCXL forums, everyone started playing this game, Team Fortress Classic. So we started a clan on there, and that's really how I got into the community. But that was cool. that was so in an August, online so April, forum to, April to August, based on a gaming magazine. Is that right? Yeah. So we asked ah. the guy, like the editors, they were here in the Bay Area. And, uh-huh. You know, we just started playing on. You start using that tag. It's a pop. It's like using the PC gamer tag. People are like, oh, do you work for? You know, like, oh no, we're just like the game community from their forum. But you know, we like someone had a server, so we we're playing on there. And the guys found out about it. They were all playing the game too. So uh-huh. people are like maximum PC, PC gamer, PC so All those guys were playing TFC at that time. So yeah, boy, it was a small world back then. Yeah, like- it was a lot smaller, and they all knew. Like it was, if you had a dial-up, you were also very regionalized, right? So if you were on dial-up in the yeah. Bay Area, you're playing on. Bay Area, LA, maybe Seattle servers, but you weren't messing with further east because the ping would be, you know, impossible. This was before the netcode patch, before the patch that added the client prediction. So right. And it was that, that netcode that really helped me get into it. You know, actually, the, the story I like to tell uh, is that for Christmas, uh, this would have been when I was, I guess, in high school. Uh, my parents got me Quake 3, Half-Life, and Unreal Tournament for <laughs> as gifts. And yeah. I sat down to play all three. And, yeah, completely. It literally changed my life. Um, and Unreal Tournament was fun because I could play offline with bots. But that only went so far. Quake 3, you can't play on dial-up. At least you couldn't. Uh, it's just netcode wasn't built for it. But Half-Life, Half-Life you could do. Um, yeah, yeah, you can totally do it with the, the netcode. client. The, yeah, that 110, whatever, 1100 badge, 1.1 1. 1 badge. Yeah. So for maybe it would be useful just to... I'm curious. Uh, this is a, a strange question I wrote down earlier that I think we cool to hear your answer for. 
Um, in your own words, how would you describe the game of Team Fortress Classic? I mean, it was just very influential, I would say. It was the first online team-based game that had like a very, very strong emphasis on having there be offense and defense playing together at the same time. And you were playing together as a team. It wasn't just who can get the most frags, you know, like the Quake 3 or Quake 2, Quake 1 deathmatch. I'm sorry, the capture the flag modes from the Quake games were not... There was very little tactics or strategy or anything. You were just going and DMing and then get the flag. If you didn't kill everyone and get it home, that was the end of your run because the flag just returned immediately when the other right. team touched it. And that really so distinguished those... the touch returns versus the timed returns that Team Fortress Classic yeah. had for its capture the flag mode. It made a big difference in the way that played. Yeah, so having teams that were working around objective, real objectives, I think uh, it was definitely unique for that. And that was, you know, obviously in Quake World TF, the first version of the game. Uh, I didn't that's have a good enough computer to play Quake, so that was why I didn't really get into it. Yeah, yeah I was I the same boat as you there. To... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna, I was, I was just wondering in my head. Um, Team Fortress Classic was the first game I got exposed to that had class design in it that wasn't just like, you know, an RPG with, you know, warrior, mage, priest, that kind of stuff. Um, was TFC or was Fortress the game that introduced class-based gameplay to shooters? Yeah, probably. I mean, that's obviously the big, the other big part of it. Yeah, and there might have been other ones. That's evolved now. Like, um, I so I, I took a few years off from gaming in the early 2010s, and when I came back, one of the games that first got me excited was Overwatch, and it, because I saw in it like the next evolution of what do you do after class-based gameplay, after class-based team-based, what's the next thing? And it kind of took the idea of a class and and, and personified them and get, make them made them characters. Um, yeah, there were people now with their own stories. It really surprised me, like, how long it took. Um, I think that that class-based gameplay that Team Fortress Classic ha- had was so cool. And in a lot of ways, um, I, I, it, it just surprises me that from when Fortress came out first, which was, I think, in, was it 96 that, that Quake Fortress came out? Yeah, the first Quake World TF. So 96 to year, 2015. It took 20 years in my mind for that class formula to be meaningfully iterated on in any kind of way. And it blows my mind how ahead of its time Fortress was in that regard. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you've got tribes, much fewer classes. The Battlefield games try to define like four different roles, right? The medic, sniper, yeah, you know, support, and but that's still only four, like making it fit with nine. And now Overwatch yeah. has got to be at 30 more now or something but it's gotten insane i haven't played overwatch lately yeah overwatch but is... yeah that's, you have quake world tf into tf2 into overwatch probably i don't think there's anything meaningful in the middle there as far as that gameplay archetype goes. yeah and one of the things that the tfc did that was so neat was whether intentionally or not um because because of i'm not sure why exactly why the whole game game mode formed around like eight v eight or nine versus nine capture the flag. But I love that multi-dimensional, like you were saying earlier, offense and defense on the same team, and the fact that the classes had were sufficiently different that actually there was a reason to play different classes, whether you're playing offense or defense or holding certain points. The design of those maps and of the game mode itself was really successful in making well, honestly, probably six of the nine classes um, were represented in competitive gameplay. Um, yeah, that was that was why it was different. 
you know, in Counter-Strike, you had a high level of teamwork and coordination, but you were still just playing one side as terrorists, whether it's counter-terrorist, one is attacking, the other is defending the bomb site, or however you want to def- There was no other game, even now, like Team Fortress 2, they were like, well, we'll throw in a capture the flag map on two fort or something. You know, it, it was like an afterthought because it didn't work. So the focus is all on objectives that the team is fighting. One team is defending, the other team is attacking. Yeah. TF2 or in a lot of ways. King of the Hill. Good. But yeah, so, I mean, King of the Hill is the same way. You've got still all the teams are fighting over like a linear progression of points. You know, like it's basically the same thing. Like there's, they're all essentially derivatives of the attack defend. Right. And um, I know that the Team Fortress community back in the day had a, there was a smaller community of competitive attack defend players. Actually, my brother um, played TFC with some of those guys, Um, but it never had the same, uh, it didn't have the same strength of community and didn't have the same strength of competitive scene as the capture the flag. Um, for whatever yeah, reason. Attack, Attack Defend obviously came out later once they added Dust Bowl and Avanti. Yeah. I don't remember what other maps there were, but uh, I mean, those players were typically just younger. I think they got into the game later. The first wave of the clan scene, the competitive scene, was all was all Capture the Flag. That's um, what there was. Yeah, because there was just no other choice. And then the players developed their skills based on that type of gameplay. And when you're just spamming grenades in Attack Defend, it doesn't really give you the same... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> opportunity mm-hmm. to, to fight and especially because the maps most of those maps are also designed with sort of like a push against a wall of defense and you just sort of move that wall backwards there's not like this same dynamic deathmatch element happening in those middle spaces you know like we right. talked about the offense and defense crossing each other and that doesn't really exist in that other that other way of playing but yeah those players in general just came by later i don't know it's hard to really compare the two. There was all these different communities in Team Fortress, right? Yeah. But yeah, 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 they were fun. I mean, it was fun to play the that that game type. It was just once they came out with like the low grinds versions later, it got a lot better. <laughs> yeah, grenades were one of those elements of, of of that game that needed toning down, and th- that was one of the big things that you guys I noticed you guys changed within in Fortress Forever. Yeah, there was. I think I don't remember if the damage was just reduced. Or whether we actually I think the radius the was radius adjusted. Too. Yeah, it was a big part yeah. of it. Um, yeah, I don't I mean, remember we... the damage being much different, but also the availability, like the like the the way that you can pick up grenade packs in a lot of TFC maps, or some of them were just designed to start you out with four. God help you, or God help the defense. Um, but I didn't I don't remember that being a big part of Fortress Forever for the little time. That yeah, I it, it took a while to reduce the the map. The grenade counts on maps in Team Fortress Classic. Like it, the map makers eventually figured out that you could do that. I think in the beginning, people just didn't realize. And then like Fried Bunny and TDA went and ripped out the entities in the maps and changed the amount of grenades. Kept everything else identical. Because you can do that without the source files to the maps. So that's oh, why we were able to change. Just change some of the we were getting... huh. Yeah, we were able to change all that. So that's how like Open Fire Logrens came about. And there was probably a version of that for like everything opposed bases all these maps got logrens version two for it well defrag's two for it remake had less uh, grenades yeah interesting uh, i but, didn't know any of that stuff yeah defrag was really influential in the early like when the we first started playing in the in the european scene over here he had brought a lot of stuff back over here and some of that stuff went back to valve too like their first beta patch for removing bunny hopping was epic fails we were testing it and it was like you could bunny hop four times faster like, hey guys, I don't think you can fix this the right way. Uh, <laughs> gonna have to dial that back. Yeah, in the 
in the original game, Team Fortress Classic, body hopping was totally uncon was un unconstrained, right? You can just yeah. gain acceleration, gain speed forever. But what, en what ended up going into the game was a change where if you were if you were going at 170% the speed of run running after a jump, it basically slammed you to back to 50% movement speed or something like that, right? I think it was 170 back to 110, 20, 30 or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Okay. But uh, yeah, in Fortress Forever, we tried to basically keep those numbers roughly the same, I think, but we just made it so that you didn't have to jump. Like you could just hold jump like in Quake and continue jumping. Didn't you also get, didn't you also change it so that um it slows you there's a soft cap it slows you back down to the to the cap right. I think that's what it was a soft cap instead of a hard cap that's what I remember it being different. right yeah that's right so you can get faster for a little bit it was supposed oh. to be like a compromise between Quake World TF which never got a bunny hop movement yeah. nerf and suffers because of that I think but how important do you think those movement mechanics were to Fortress I mean that was like a huge deal right it was like a third pillar of aim and then like teamwork or you know whatever you want to say smarts about how you play and then adding this movement ability was pretty revolutionary too i would say so once player learned it wasn't built into the game players learned it right it went on as the game progressed the community got you know wiser to what you could and couldn't do right so there was like a huge change when bunny hopping was discovered but there was other things right like conking and rocket jumping were all originally not intended so <laughs> it went on and on i mean there was way more the ramp sliding stuff and chop hopping i guess was probably one of the later ones chop hopping uh, and yeah. something called c c tapping in tf2 which was discovered which i think works in the older versions of the game as well i don't know if you're familiar with that one no i'm not what is it oh there's a one of the pro tf2 players became well known for this ability it's very hard to do but when you have to have like the server performance has to be very you have to have a fast server basically because it is recording the the data you have to catch it at the right time basically you have to have a lot of updates going per second so what you do is you basically just crouch and then you use the uncrouch animation which shoots you up in the air to time your jump whatever oh you're assisted with so like that's called the c tapping crouch tapping you basically tap crouch and then as it uncrouches you do your 180 degree you know strafe rocket jump maneuver but it's like 50 percent higher than a regular rocket jump or 80 percent higher or something like that that's awesome and there's like and there's a there's like a signature on the map Badlands in TF2. There's like a signature jump that you can test it with because it's very it's right at the very limits of the jump that you could, you know of the ability you should say. So everyone tries this map this you know the jump on Badlands to practice this jump and it's useful too if you can do it. It's just very hard to do reliably, especially if you're getting shot at or the server's not performing well. Yeah, that was one of the big shocks to me when I started playing Team Fortress 2. It's like, wait a sec, they removed concussion jumping. Wait a sec. They removed bunny hopping. Wait a sec. Why is this so slow? I get kind yeah. of a, a, a bit of a cruel thrill out of hearing that the community found something like that. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they added items later, like, you know, the gun boots or whatever. You could basically wear an item that would take away your secondary, take away your shotgun, but allow you to take vastly less damage from self-rockets. So encouraging soldiers oh. to be able to jump around. And you can skim off of walls and the ground easier in TF2. It's just the way that the mechanics are of the RPG. So that added a lot of skill back to the game, huh. soldier. And then double jumping with a scout. But it's not the same as it was in, you know, there's there's not like the conch jumping, ramp sliding, all that stuff is gone. I mean, maybe you can ramp slide if you can get fast enough. You probably still can, but it's not quite the same. Is there anything but in Team Fortress 2 that compares with the speed that you could achieve in TFC? 
Yeah, if you're playing Rum Soldier, doing those rocket jumps, mm. or just okay. playing Scout. And Scout just has that native fast movement speed and double jumping, and that, that's what gets it for the Scout, right? Yeah, if you haven't watched Banny play Scout on Twitch, he still streams. I don't know if they're even playing competitively or if it's just all pug games that he plays, but he plays Scout pretty much exclusively. He played Demo at the beginning of the TF2 competitive scene, I think. Did you make the but transition like over a... to TF2 when it came out? Yeah, I played a, I played a lot in the beginning with TDA, and then uh-huh. we didn't really stick with it, so I quit <laughs> probably for like a year, six months, nine months, a year, something like that. And then there was a LAN competition in 2008 uh, in San Jose where I live, and the, one of the teams needed me or rather needed a player and knew I was around. But I told them, like, I haven't been playing TF2. I don't really, I'm not in the current meta. Like, the meta when we played was different, right? When it just came out, we were playing Capture the Flag still, and crits hadn't been turned off and you know by the server. And there was just a lot of variables that hadn't been tweaked, and the gameplay hadn't been, you know, finalized or whatever. The meta hadn't settled, right? Right. People but didn't uh, know how to didn't... play it at a competitive level. Yeah, exactly. But we came, We I played anyway. It was like APOC and some of her friends some guys that were like pro players from other sports other east other sports other games <laughs> did you guys win? played other esports uh we took third place but this was like of a field of pro teams so <laughs> it's pretty good sounds like a pretty fun event so they realized that i knew how to play like pretty quickly the guys on my team and other teams were like oh yeah this guy knows what he's doing <laughs> right. so i sort of got offers into playing with some of these teams and it's kind of like the intermediate level of esca at the time which was like the or sevo i can't remember what it was whatever the online pro-am tournament was that you you know you played online but was the seeder for the live tournament so it's a 2008 so competitive a competitive gaming scene it looked a lot different than it does today right uh yeah it was still it was pretty established i mean you like dota so? was really big when did dota come yeah. out mm, it's like it's being played for a while before that it was released mm-hmm. and it was pretty okay. established it was just hard like until until some of the later you know like dota 2 came out it was hard to do online or sorry on lan because there was just like you had to do really hacky stuff to get the game to, you know, it wasn't, it was like a custom map for a different game. It, you know, it was, <laughs> it's completely different, but Dota was really popular. So I remember that was there at the tournament and Counter-Strike was always being played. They had an Unreal tournament, whatever, 2K5 or 4 or 6, whatever it would have been at the time. I don't know what game they were playing. I lose yeah. track of all the Unreal tournament versions, but like Lost yeah. Cause was playing Rafik. He played at that tournament and won the Unreal tournament solo tournament. He ended up playing on a TF2 team I was on later, so. Sure, but the players—the so, players that came from DM backgrounds were just never any good at Team Fortress. It was like this constant. It was never—it was always the same thing. They could never play the game. They could aim really well, but they didn't know what to do when it was like time for team coordination and pushes and withdrawing and stuff. Yeah, it requires a different level, a different kind of approach to the game. Um, where, um, yeah, say a little bit. I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. Um, I don't actually know a lot about most of what I know about the deathmatch like dueling shooter scene comes from watching lat play uh lats are our our buddy fellow xtfc although he came to the game a lot later than we did but he like hits it hard with the um the dueling scene in quake champions um and that skill set obviously is very different than what you would want to use playing um a team game like tfc yeah i mean that's just the the stereotype is that they're focused on you know getting whatever kills in front of them but a lot of the times you know, whether you want to call it trigger control or whatever, there's a lot of times where you need to leverage an advantage by not doing, you know, not just killing the only thing, the next thing you see or whatever. You want to basically restrain yourself and work with the team to sort of capture a more advantageous position instead of going for the easy kill or whatever, which sometimes it works, right? You still need to have those 
raw aim abilities, especially if you're playing scout in TF2. Right. So that is pretty incredibly hard to aim when the other scout, especially against another scout. But yeah, I mean, that's just a, I would say it's a stereotype that's mostly the same. I play PUBG with all the Quake players and it's always the same thing too with there. Like they're getting knocked and fighting in bad places when they should be retreating to cover and then engaging from the advantageous position, right? So it's just like a matter of, yeah. when you know they're playing that way, you're like, you're almost like the guy that's, you know, running behind them in those games, like offering support. So I can fall into support roles a lot because I'm like, well, you guys it's are like the dad of the group, like watching the kids running around. Like, okay, yeah. kids, you're out of position. What are we supposed yeah, to be like, doing? Don't forget what the, we talked about. <laughs> yeah, the classic, the classic, in t the, the classic situation in PUBG is they're gotten shot in the head by someone and they didn't see and are calling for a smoke grenade to cover them. And I'm like, I've already thrown one on them because I knew they were going to get knocked. You know, it's like, <laughs> so it's it's funny watching the inevitable happen. Right? You're just like, that's funny, but it does get frustrating after a while too. And you know, it's like being able to predict the future, right? Is after a while you're like should just do this the right way the first time. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I have, I guess, um, a different perspective on how to approach games than maybe I once did. I remember um, just hearing you talk about dudes who kind of hit, um, like, glass ceilings when it comes to playing a game like PUBG, where um, they could be doing better if they would just kind of clue in to positioning and think a little bit about the map and think about where the other, where the other players are going to be and what kind of state they'd be in and whether they'd be pushing or retreating and how you can treat those kinds of the kind of game knowledge right which is something that TFC really encouraged because you're always keeping track of the score and where's where's the flag for each team and who's alive and who's dead and you know is there a, a lane that's open you can exploit um, I remember one very specific moment back <laughs> in my TFC days where I just got completely I, I realized i was behind the curve because i couldn't bunny hop um and i don't <laughs> feel like I, I got, somehow i got away with it for a while i don't know how um i played defensive soldier pretty much exclusively but um there was a match and i think it was being shoutcasted by someone i remember watching the replay and um you're we playing zero tolerance which you know were one of the one of the super clans of that era of tfc and Rentonite, who was like, um, he, you remember Rentonite? He was. Uh, yeah, I still talk with him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at, at the time, Rent was a, a a prodigy at the game, and he bunny hopped around me, made me look like a fucking idiot, <laughs> and then went off to get the flag from our team. I think I was like top spiral two for it or something. I remember watching that and just feeling so embarrassed, and was oh like oh fuck, I gotta figure out how to bunny hop, and and you were one of the people that I came to. I remember. I don't know how it happened, but I remember being in a server with you in Well, and I was trying to bunny hop across the moat uh, in front of the, the the base. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's the assault heavy weapon guy, the glide jump, strafe jumping uh, yeah. test. I still, that... I, I still, <laughs> I still did that. Like, if you remember Spike from the Catacombs Discord, yep. him and his friend, he was trying to. He was like, "You gotta come and like play with this guy. He knows like a lot of stuff about the game." And so I was like, "Yeah, dude, like." First of all, like you don't know how to move in the game, but in his defense, he's been playing on what is that server that's Drippy's two for whatever. Like it's all nerfed; you can't move on that server. They've got yeah. Even if you know what, you can't use it there. It's weird. Yeah, exactly. So he would never really know, right? But so I was showing him that well jump, that strafe jump. You know, it's like a we call, Gobe called it gliding. The guy who invented this maneuver. Uh -huh. But yeah, so like that was the test. But you should have been a heavy weapon guy to jump across the well water. That's the that's right. the the key. But yeah, that was like. It's a huge part of the game 
of Team Fortress Classic was just learning how to glide jump. Because the second jump that you did in a row, do the first jump, right? You accelerate. The second jump, you'd already be at the move cap if you did it right. Right, you just maintain the acceleration after that. And, yeah, and, and people who are bunny it. hopping, people who are bunny hopping are were tending to just go left and right, like a sine wave pattern across the vector of where they're trying to go, right? So trying to yep. go to point A to point B, their trajectory follows like a sine wave along that line to the end. But if you just learn how to accelerate optimally using strafing on the ground, you can basically get point A to point B in a straight line, moving at that movement cap, and you end up going faster. You'll see a lot of players that will accelerate with a few bunny hop jumps, and then they kind of get to like the place where they need to get to that next corner around the next hallway, and then they kind of just try to keep jumping straight ahead to get yeah. there because they know like in their head, you know, they're sort of conceptually, they know what they're trying to do, but they can't quite do it because every jump after that is just a straight ahead, like a rock skipping on a pond, right? They're not actually like, right. continuing their acceleration. Right. Rather you than get actually good enough at it, integrating all the mechanics or just like, like kind of think, okay, this is what I do if I want to move fast. And they're executing that procedure, but it's, it's a little bit rigid unless you kind of get comfortable with some of the, the, the mechanics within that, that sine wave bunny hop. Right. You have to, you can use both, right. But you don't want to always just be doing the sine wave bunny hop because your distance total traveled is like, you know, 50% longer than if you just went from point A to point B straight. Also, it was which you can do if you just go, if you've seen it before. Yeah. Right? So like that was a big deal of, I mentioned major Gobe. He was like a famous heavy weapon guy, you know, the assault class and team fortress classic, but he taught a class on this movement. Cause with heavy weapon guy being able to start and stop quickly, and surprise your opponent by being in a place that they wouldn't expect you to be with the assault cannon going full power. Obviously, it was a big deal playing that class. Uh, and you couldn't really bunny hop and move with the assault cannon. I mean, you could before they capped it, but it was still tricky. It took a while to wind up and get going fast enough. And you'd be out of ammo by the time you got to where you wanted to go, keeping the yeah. assault cannon firing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we taught, we taught that. We merged with his heavy weapon school with Code of Honor, which I think you ended up helping with later too, right? Yep, I was involved. Yeah, Back when I, I, after, after I got a clue. This. <laughs> after we after we taught you but yeah, yeah so it was funny going back last year it was funny going back last year with that guy spike on the catacombs discord and teaching him how to do that he obviously couldn't do it neither could his friend so it was like a lost art in the game right it's kind of a trip to think about that is a trip that is a trip players are players that are still playing team fortress classic on drippies have no idea that none of this stuff even exists most of my mind people are doing that but again it, 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 also it blows my mind that that the in-house community exists you're familiar with them, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And one of the funny things about them is like they've played the game so much with themselves. It's like the what is Neil Stevenson and Anathem? The staring into your belly button ha happens with the wise men in the cave that never leave and start uh, to become blind to the outside world. Uh -huh. they, they, there's things that we would do, like in a, in Code of Honor, we would teach. You, I'm sure you remember you and I teaching other people on Open Fire to like do the rotations with four soldiers on defense. And when yep. one dies, you just rotate counterclockwise or clockwise, whichever way you're rotating and you're filling in that position. Right. And then like the rest of the team rotates behind them. Right. But like <laughs> if you play in-house or watch in-house, they never rotate or do any of that shit. They just go back to their stand at their position, hoping that, you know, they'll move up and whatever, like reposition when the flag moves, but there's not like that filling the gap, the whole, it doesn't really occur. Like it did when you had a legit team that played together all the time. Right. Yeah, it's it's because it's like a different really team every cool. time. Like so, so in house being what it is, which is the last you know echoes of the old competitive TFC scene that played capture the flag. Um, it's cool that that's there, but you're, you what you said is right. Like having those kinds of clan clan based uh, those kinds of strategies that took clans to pull off. 
I was like, okay, I know that you, you, and you are going to be our soldiers. This is going to be our strategy for this map. If here's, here's our general rotation strategy for when people go down, here's what you're going to do. And those kinds of things, they're not, um, they don't live in pickups, you know, um, they tend to be more embodied by the, the clans that were playing the competitive matches at those times. Would you say that's right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I don't know, it's just, it's a different thing. Like they play a different, it's a little different style. It's obviously more, more evolved. It's faster. Um, yes, but also part fast. of that, part of that, part of that's because it's just four on four and there's no crossfire. There's no congestion, you know, <laughs> it's less chaotic because you don't have the offensive yeah, that, playing. The whole dynamic of having a multi-dimension team with OND is not there. It's just... Yeah, uh, but at the, at the same time, I wish that we had thought about doing that during the Team Fortress Classic era. Like, when we brought the game to CPL, we had to bring, so like, eight or ten teams the first time. It might have been more than that. Sixteen teams for the first tournament. Like, you had to get, like, 150, 200 people <laughs> all to play, like, a tournament. Whereas if you had just done OVD 15 minutes, switch sides, the matches are over in half the time. And you only need four players. Yeah. It would have been easier been to like, manage and way more spectatable. Yeah. And then the game could have also been updated. Had we done that sooner, I think Valve would have been more likely to add that kind of thing into the server. Although the one thing that that would have robbed the game of are those last minute, like, we're down by one cap moments, but there's five minutes to go. And we've got to push our advantage and try to create a hole. Like, there's this heavy weapons guy that's just destroying us. Let's let's get him down. Let's take down the sentry gun and we'll make a push. Like that moment where it's heads up and it's win or lose. You kind of lose that tension a little bit in OVD. If yeah, like. yeah, yeah. And also, like, if you score five in 15 minutes and the other team scores six in seven minutes, then <laughs> that's the end. Whereas teams tended to play it out in TFC because of just it was happening at the same time. <laughs> right. Right. But, but yeah, it was, it was different. I mean, yeah, it's much better, I would say, but the, there's trade-offs. I'm having there be fewer people. It's more, it's more in line with, I think the way things have evolved where I think six with overwatch is probably the most that you'll see for any kind of like esport type yeah. of team. Yeah, getting you know, nine people together to play overwatch. a competitive game just t- turns out to be pretty tough. Yeah, it was rough. Nine, eight, ten. We did 10 for some maps. It was even harder. Yeah, yeah, like the um, like the canal zone and CZ two type maps. Yeah, you'd always have like someone you know ringing for your team or someone <laughs> fill in one more player. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So this is awesome. I love reminiscing about TFC. I could do for hours, honestly. But I want to hear a little bit more about how did you said to me about with Fortress Forever that um, it, it sounds like you, maybe you were involved. How did you get involved with that project? Let's just put it that way. So yeah, I mean, I was. I was very well, I was prominent in the community. Sorry, like people already knew about me. Everyone knew of me. Yeah, and no, they knew that. a dose pack, of course. Yeah. yeah, they, I mean, I don't, I think I was approached to come on and just help with kind of getting the game. So in the first push to like ramp up production on the game, they brought me in to just work on the gameplay design. Um, at that time, you know, everyone was just kind of doing whatever they could do for the project. So since I didn't have like any formal coding skill or anything, I was mainly doing high level design, sort of fixing the classes that were broken, like especially pyro. Um, and then I did a lot of just the QA testing as things got more, like as our beta started, the closed beta, the private beta, whatever we called it. I was pretty much in charge of doing the beta testing. And it, it was more like a lot of the, I don't know, you want to say like the administrative side of it, but it was like getting 
people to show up for the beta tests, uh, doing yeah. interviews, doing doing all the media. I did all like the press, you know, the interviews, email correspondence or live or whatever. The game had quite a bit of interest in the news, the game media, especially because a lot of the guys, like I mentioned, the Maximum PC, the PC Gamer, the PCXL was gone, but some of those guys went on to be the, like all the PCXL guys ended up being editors-in-chief of other magazines. They were all huge Team Fortress, you know, fanatics still, you know, that many years later. So they were really interested. I mean, we had like two page spreads in a lot of these magazines, like, which is pretty unheard of for a mod. You might get like that a little cool. side, you can make a side panel, you know, like a little blurb at the edge of a game review of a similar type of game or something. Yeah. But our media, like our art guys, like all those guys were really good. I mean, we had like really, really good people doing the graphic texturing, map making, all that stuff. All those people went on to be, or were already working in the industry. I mean, like immediately after Fortress Forever, the guys that got jobs, uh, we're all working on like A plus triple A titles, like the Battlefields, Mirror's Edge was one of them, Borderlands, Gearbox. Like I think that was one of the ones they were working on immediately after some of the What about you, Kelly? You don't do game dev I, now, right? No, no, I didn't. So I did a lot, like I said, of the media PR crap I, they wanted to do. I did a lot of QA testing. And I did all the design. Like so Kyle and I, not like the design at the high level, but we had the base for what we wanted to start the game. We wanted to begin as you know the Team Fortress Classic 1.5 or whatever, but like I mentioned, we didn't start anything. We didn't copy anything from TFC other than like the move speed of the classes or something, and the classes themselves. But we were like again so worried that Valve was going to try to like shut down the project or something that we were stealing something from them. We just had like a informal, you know, yeah, it's okay, do whatever you want, but you can't sell it. Was what they told us. So they're only we involved like, with it. Uh, I think. We were pretty secretive. Uh, we were like competitive with them, I would say, at the time. So it was, was like a front of me thing. Not until they announced it. I remember when it came out like very last minute. When like, was it they announced? Didn't make a big announcement. It was pretty Just close when it came out. Yeah, they made the announcement um, right around the time that Fortress Forever came out. <laughs> right. It was like so a month before. That Fortress Forever came everything. out on the 13th of September and TF2. If you pre-ordered it, you could play it on the 18th. So it was a five-day period where Fortress yeah. Forever existed in a, in a non-TF2 world. What was the they feeling? They moved that up a month. They moved that up a month. It was a month earlier than they originally announced because they were worried everyone was going to go oh, and play man. our game. I mean, this oh, is my man. theory, but it makes sense, right? Like, we had a decent amount. There was like 2 million downloads in that first weekend or something, and a lot of people were playing the game. Yeah, there was so, a lot like, of hype around it. I was Yeah, that's what I mean. It was like, I think, I think that was... I, I say that they did that on purpose. I have no idea, but it seems like they bumped up things to try to compete with our release. And then when TF2 came out, obviously that was kind of the end of Fortress Forever as a prominent online game. I mean, it was just very unfortunate. We've been working on this game for years and we're very open about it, right? We weren't keeping anything a secret once the game was, un, you know, once we unstealthed it, there was no like, it was very transparent from that point on, right? And yeah. Valve had not said anything. So we built this game as a you know blood, sweat, and tears. I was probably doing 20, 30 hours a week on top of working full-time at a different job during the day, you know. And then this game, like, comes out, they torpedo the announcement, the whole thing blasted because it all happened at the same time. It feels really bad, <laughs> even still. <laughs> Dude, I, I can only imagine. Like, what... I'm, I'm sure that, that that day when you guys on the team saw that announcement and started corresponding with each other, I can only imagine with what what words were exchanged probably a lot of fucks and shits and what the hell yeah kyle and i just basically stopped working on fortress forever completely we never came back to it we were pretty <sighs> pissed 
Yeah, so here, I did a little bit of research before we came together, and I see that, here's here's a timeline that I have, and I was going to ask you about this. Fortress Forever, September 13th. TF2, September 18th. October 30th, your last post on on the Fortress Forever forum. Like, there's a very clear picture that suggests to me of, like, yeah, I mean, it Valve, was, it was, it seems like Valve killed this game. And why would they, why would they do such a thing? I mean, I think they were building their version of TF2 along the same timeline that we were. It just happened to be that they released at the same time. I think they definitely moved up the beta for TF2, though, in regard like to match or to compete or however you want to say it with us. Do you we think were they were scared of Fortress for Forever? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, like internally, Valve was like really cool about everything. They weren't like competing insofar as they wanted like to drive us off the planet. You know what I mean? They were just miffed. I think that the community got a new Fortress came out first before them, <laughs> and it was and it wasn't bad. You know, like it wasn't like you know, sticks and stones. It was like they released a full game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because Fortress Forever now would be in that like twenty dollar range of like a you know a cheap yeah. online only. Could have gone the route of many Half-Life mods where they could publish their own unique games that you can buy. Yeah, like but the Mike problem Mason. also with... Yeah, exactly. And they didn't care. You know, they let them do that. And obviously, it's different. Valve is, has a lot more money now than they did back then as well. So, Right. But no, I mean, the, the people inside the game too, like you could probably ask Kyle about this, but the people who were working on Fortress Forever with us weren't people that you would necessarily want to have all on a team together. It was just they were the people who had time and were willing and compassionate about doing it. But when you have all these people who are compassionate about, you know, making this game and about Team Fortress, they don't necessarily get along. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there was a lot of infighting. I mean, I'll give the example that Valve wanted to, or rather, I wanted to have Valve put the Fortress Forever release up on the Steam, you know, blurb that comes up when you launch the game. Naturally. Or, sorry, when you launch Steam, rather, right? The yeah, like the new games releases kind of stuff they do. Yeah. Yeah. And and now you can just pay Valve and get that. It's expensive. But back then, they didn't allow that. It was just their internal, like, blog, basically. It wasn't, like, commercialized like it is now. And they because of that, people it, yeah. also... Yeah, and people also were much more likely to, like, click through on those kind of things because it wasn't just, like, you have 11, you know, you restart Steam. You know, it's been two, three weeks since you restarted the Steam client and you have 12 messages sitting there. Like, any of those would be, like, a big deal back at that time. People actually read them, you know what I mean? But they, so Valve wanted us to put Fortress Forever release on there. It was a big thing. They were all excited. They were playing it that first weekend. And then like internally they were like, well, we have like this crash bug with the models and like it looks funky and I don't want to release it because I have a chance to fix this. And it was like, dude, what the, you guys don't understand. <laughs> Getting like the best free marketing push you could have on an online platform right now with this. And they're like all fighting about it. And so we never did, like, it never happened. There was never, like, a, and then people later were like, oh, it's a conspiracy, like, Valve never put oh, anything man. about Fortress Forever out on the in Steam and everything, but they wanted to, like, or at least they said, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> I don't know if they really wanted to, but that, they sort of felt indebted to us, especially Robin, because, like, Team Fortress was his baby, right? So it's like, you know, <laughs> your baby's having a <laughs> redheaded stepchild or something. <laughs> I don't know. You're a, grand, yeah. you're a grandfather now. <laughs> yeah. Well, he feels, I'm sure he felt some responsibility. I mean, Fortress is his game, and everyone on that team was inspired by what he made. Yeah, and we're talking about Robin Walker, the creator of Team Fortress Software, which is the Australian mod team that made Quake World TF for Quake World back in the day and ended up working on 
he was the lead on TF2, and then he worked on Dota, and now he's working on the Half-Life Alex project, I think, pretty much exclusively at Valve now. I mean, he has yeah. been for a while now. I saw him on um, an interview that uh, was done by um, Noclip. Are you familiar with that that YouTube channel? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he uh, he looked terrified to talk about doing another Half-Life game. Yeah, I think the guys... I mean, yeah, like, the, the guys at Valve all know, like, it's... You just have to put yourself in the life situations, right? Like you're like a teenager, you're late teens, you're learning how to code, you like come up with this great idea, you get compassionate about it, you start your career, <laughs> you you work for ten years on Half Life One and Two, and then you make a ton of money, you have a few kids, <laughs> now you're middle aged. Do you want to go and put five years of your life into making like the epic follow up Half Life Three when you could just sit back and not have to worry? And they've they've, they've been paying Enjoy other people having for a life. Game. Yeah. Yeah, like they've been paying other people to, you know, all the game think about all the Valve games, like even going back to Counter Strike. Like it's Counter Strike, Dota, which was a Warcraft three mod, which I ironically joked at one point about with Robin. I was like, You guys should just pay the guy from fucking Dota to go and make Dota two on source. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> They probably already had done that, you know. But my my company worked on my company published Dota two in China, so we had like a whole back end connection with Dota two with them as well. Company was I worked a perfect I worked at Perfect World Entertainment, which was a U.S. subsidiary of a Chinese company that made RPGs. Uh, uh-huh. But Torch, Torchlight is probably the most well-known U.S. game that they worked that they uh, published. Yep, definitely know Torchlight. And what was your other involvement with that that company? What else did you work on? Yeah, yeah. So they knew they knew about me working on Fortress Forever, uh, and they were interested in basically starting. Uh, they wanted to publish a free-to-play first-person shooter. So they had always done RPGs, but they had a company, they had a dev studio in Seattle that they'd signed like a really good deal with to make a free-to-play shooter to basically transfer Blacklight Tango Down, which was a Xbox Live Arcade title. And they wanted to port Blacklight, Blacklight to PC. Like it was on Unreal, so it wasn't like that big of a port, but they wanted to move it to the, you know, as a PC shooter and make it free-to-play. And this was in 2010, 11, 12-ish. So... Uh-huh. At that time, there wasn't really like the free to play first person shooters for the US market were really bad. Like Combat Arms was one. If you know, did you know that? Have you heard of that game before? I have heard of it, yes. Yeah, it's like basically like it sounds bad, but it's like basically a Chinese knockoff of Counter Strike that's just added microtransactions to. <laughs> and yep. the gameplay was all right. The graphics were really bad. These games were meant to run on like low end integrated graphics, Windows XP, you know, the machines that other countries maybe can't afford to have, you know, like a super high-end gaming rig like we can here. So anyway, they basically wanted me to go and work on their first-person shooter because their people didn't know anything about first-person shooters. They were just making RPGs. And the twofold problem was that they were, U.S. subsidiary was not really making RPGs. They were just translating RPGs. <laughs> oh boy, that's a big difference. Localization yes. ain't game dev. Exactly. So you've got like a team, like a QA team that just knows how to do localization QA, and then you've got like a studio and management and everyone who knows how to monetize RPGs. And it's a little different with a shooter. I mean, it's still the same concepts. You're selling skins and, right. you know, boosts and things like that, you know, gain experience faster, you know, similar ideas, but they actually wanted me to try out, I guess, or like, you know, there it wasn't really an interview per se. They were more interested in seeing how I could kind of operate in the free-to-play monetization world because I was going to work, be working for the publisher and obviously our goal was to make money, not to make the game. Right. So I wrote like a 20, 30-page document on TF2. So basically just 
you know, theory crafting TF2 into a free to play shooter, which it later did become. Holy shit. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I ever sent that. I probably, I may have sent it to, to Robin at some point because he and I were very, you know, in like every once in a while we would chat. Like it wasn't like a regular thing or anything. I'd just shoot him a message every once in a while. But anyway, there was a lot of cool stuff that I came up with in this document. And so basically the guys at Perfect World are like, hey, you know, we, <laughs> we saw you playing for your Fortress Forever. One of the guys was involved in TFC uh, and I knew him in real life, sort of like friend of a friend at that time. So he kind of knew of me through TFC. But anyway, I wrote this document and they were like, holy shit, this guy actually is like, did an amazing job with this. So I ended up getting the job there. <laughs> so I was working in IT. Fortress Forever had been over in 2000 and what did you say? Seven? Yeah. Eight? Seven. Seven. Yeah. So then in 2010, in the fall or the summer of, maybe 2000, summer of 2010, I think, maybe the spring or summer, I started working on Blacklight Retribution, which was the free-to-play shooter for their, you know, their big free-to-play shooter release the first shooter title shooter title this company had, had published so it was basically i was just the product manager for the game so i was doing everything kind of like i was in a way like in fortress forever it was very similar i was doing a sure. lot of pr a lot of doing a lot of producer promotion. stuff yeah yeah promotion of the game managing the budget for the marketing qa team kind of they were working directly with me and with the developer the developer didn't have their own qa team so Usually you have a couple guys in the QA and the developer, hopefully. So we were doing all of that. And they didn't have resources to host their stuff either. So we were actually running everything out of our office in Foster oh. City. So like their dev platform was running on our stuff remotely. It was kind of a nightmare. They're, they had one of the guys there would basically built this online platform. He did an amazing job, but he was obviously only one person. You can only do so much. Yeah. And the game was had a lot of problems. I had a background in IT, so I helped kind of getting the closed beta and the open beta running just from the hosting standpoint. It was just at the time when cloud hosting was becoming sort of fast enough to be able to handle that stuff. But we were still running it like bare metal. You know, we were doing our own hosting on our own boxes. But it was a big, it technologically, the, or there was a lot of technical problems with the game, I should say, but it ended up being okay. It didn't do great. It didn't do poorly. It kind of just broke even, I would say. But yeah, that was fun. I didn't want to continue. I mean, they closed that project down. You know, at some point, the online games, they just cut the team because the game's already out. Like, there's not a lot going on, right? If the dev studio went out of business, so it's like, <laughs> well, that's the end of that. So yeah. it ended up just kind of winding down. I, I got I got out of there before. There wasn't another game to work on. The whole thing, the whole studio kind of collapsed as far as like the operation got shrunk down a ton. Because again, they were just translating games from China that already had been made. So yeah, it didn't really seem like they like, were set up to do that anyway. So yeah, and they kind of knew this. They were trying to get like, they bought Cryptic Studios from Atari so like Star Trek Online came out and like mm -hmm. Neverwinter was being released later. Like Neverwinter Online, whatever it was. Not Neverwinter Nights, but the online one. It was like a WoW clone, basically. But they were just the kind of, they were stuck and it was like a lot of work. You have to work, you know, all-nighters and just, you know, you're missing your wife's birthday and holidays and things you're working because the game servers have to be on for you to make money in a free-to-play shooter. You know, you're, you're running a service. You're not just selling them a game up front and then... Right patching once or twice and then being done with it you know so a lot of technical problems means a lot of <laughs> a lot of work for me especially with a technical background where i could actually fix these things you know or make sure they were fixed at a higher standard i would say than maybe i would have otherwise which was great for the game when i left the thing fell apart like stuff didn't run anymore yeah but yeah sometimes anyway, projects like that that have a lot of systems and technical debt rely on a handful of very effective people Sounds like you were one of them. 
yeah, we'll just say like we set up an East Coast and West Coast uh, server cluster, and they had SQL databases that were mirrored, and the ops guys never put the drives in raid on the West Coast cluster. So the game was down for four days while they tried to figure out why there was only 20 gigs of data being synced between the three terabyte, four terabytes of oh raid on the East Coast. Yeah, it, it was that level of, uh, yeah, they didn't know what they were doing. It's not, it wasn't their fault. Like I said, they were handed a game that was done in Chinese and they had to basically translate it to English and then hit go. You know, like they didn't know how to do... <laughs> actual like shooters have a much higher level of uh technical demand on the you know what i mean like there's just it's like yep. lower latency you have to have yep. smaller the shard the, you know, the server they're a lot more sensitive to those kinds of the kind of technical infrastructure yeah exactly and it was it was all being built brand new by a team here versus you know the, the mothership from china handing them the executables yeah so anyway Interesting. There was a guy from there was a guy from Cryptic Studios who was like like you said the small team like he he came over and had their guys rewrite like everything to be automated as far as management 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 of the software backend and you know like updates and patches we used all of their tech because there was no like we didn't have our own patching system our developer didn't know how to write didn't know how to write one so it was kind of a nightmare they actually gave me a Steam clone that they were developing in, internally to patch the game with that wasn't working. So I took that on as a side project while I was working there and basically built up this, you know, content delivery system like Steam. It's a way, just think Steam, but just like a Chinese ripoff of Steam. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, you could see like it was kind of a nightmare just from the logistics perspective. It's like a lot of work. Yeah, it was it's a lot. a game like Black Lake Retribution. <laughs> but yeah, so the the game was it was actually pretty fun. It was a cool idea. I mean, their whole thing, their their like big gimmick or whatever, not the gimmick, but you know, their big thing that they did was that they were all basically drinking one night and we're like, it'd be funny if we just put a wall hack into our game. Everyone's cheating. Why don't we just make the wall hack built into the game? Well, they were like the first guys <laughs> to make that. It's like your helmet in the game, you can turn on a wall hack that just lasts for like a timer bar that fills up, right? Like an ability bar. Uh, it actually, visor it actually, ability and champions, quake champions. Yeah, but they were the first ones to do that. I mean, this was like on Xbox Live and the original game, Tango Down was probably like 2007 or eight or something. Uh -huh. So anyway. It was it was pretty fun. It made it it made it interesting because you could see when other players were activating it as well. So you kind of were looking back at them, you know. But then you had to manage the you know the time, the cooldown on it, and all that. So it was interesting. That's cool. And was that the end of your your journey in game dev? What came next? Uh yeah. I mean, I went back after that to my job. I worked in IT at a big accounting firm, a professional services company. So I just they actually wanted me back anyway. So they had a recent you know someone had left the team that I used to be on. So I kind of took over a different, you know, I didn't take over my old job, but it was something very similar. And uh, sure. yeah, I've been there ever since. So I guess I'm coming up on 15 years of total time working in my current employer, but there was a break in between of a few years. So oh, well. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't go back. Like I started a family. I, it's like, it's like, it's a young man's game. That's kind of what I got at before. Like with the guys at Valve, like I can see them having a struggle of getting back into that type of life when you're out of it, you know? Yeah, game dev being a young man's game, I think there's a lot of more exposure, uh, generally speaking, now about how how harsh it is on people to make video games. Um, you obviously lived it, but at that time, people didn't know that people were sacrificing families and lives in order to get these things made. Yeah, I mean, the, most people probably didn't. If you are growing up as a teenager on your computer all night, you probably don't have like a active family life at that point. <laughs> but... 
but I mean, yeah, it, it's a huge, a huge burden, I would say, especially with like the crunch time of release. Like when, when Fortress Forever was launched the month prior, we were just like cramming, you know, crazy hours trying to get it working, get everything done that needed to be done. So yeah, I mean, Blacklight was a little bit, I would say it was actually a little easier maybe with Blacklight just because we had a very like well-organized closed beta and then an open beta and we did it with like okay we're gonna run the game for three days and then we're gonna turn it off again and then it'll be up for a week and then it'll be up for sure after that for good you know like but we had like really well organized game is up game is down <laughs> fix things game is up game is down fix more things whereas if you remember obviously like back in the day once you released your game and your server code and you know you couldn't take it back right like i mean it was very difficult yep. at that point to, yep. to do that cows out of the bag so, so yeah, it was more of like the whole release early release often versus like the, you know, monolithic finish everything and release it. So I got both experiences, right? One from the development side, one as the publisher, but it's still pretty similar. Right. Yeah, games are hard to make. Um, I was talking with Matt and Taylor about this last week. Um, it was part of a bigger kind of discussion about, well, are games art? Or are they not art? And we obviously all think they are because we're, you know, nerd gamers but um i think that the thing that occurred was that comparing making a video game against like making a movie against making a tv show against making any other kind of art in any kind of medium games has everything beaten hands down in terms of what goes into it and how hard they are to make yeah it's incredibly difficult you're up you're there's just it's all of those things i mean you're doing all the things that you would do for a cd you know you're releasing your album or you're releasing and making a movie you're like that's all of that stuff is in there you know what i mean your game has music <laughs> it has sounds it has like cutscenes and scripted element you know like it's basically doing all of that all together and then you also as you know like gamers are also way more critical <laughs> so yeah well I mean, it's like about having your hands on the product and like actually controlling the way it runs like it has a different sort of expectation of, of what people are looking for than sitting and passively watching something. Yeah, it's it is it's it's startling how different it is. But when you work in the game industry, it's still a pretty small world, especially on the West Coast here. Because I mean, like when I was we did our media tours, we didn't even bother going anywhere. You could just hit up L.A., Bay Area, Seattle. It's pretty much everyone who's who in the world of gaming journalism for North America, with some exceptions. But you could just do online stuff. But it's very small on the development side. And everyone who's a developer knows that if you just ship your game, like if you're interviewing and you're like, oh yeah, we shipped like the whatever game, you know, and it's like some crappy game that just didn't sell anything. It doesn't matter. You actually shipped a game. Like that's what you need to get over. That's the hurdle you need to get over as a developer. Right. Whereas like, I think fans of games like are like, oh, you need to have like a, you know, nine or higher out of 10 review or whatever. You know what I mean? Like they have like a much different scale of like, whether or not you did a good job or not right. in the inside of the industry, it's whether or not you just shipped anything, like whether it came out, <laughs> that's how hard it is to make a game. Right. Like most, so many projects die before they ever did your work actually manifest into something that someone can play. Yeah. Like that's what people care about. Uh, <laughs> damn. Damn. What a tough world. Yeah. Are you happier yeah, now was... to be just a player of games opposed to a maker of them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I was always obviously playing games. I, I, I never played them like religiously. Like I was never like, you know, losing myself. I always had like another life. Like I always had like a girlfriend. I always had like a job. I, you know, I never let it like get to the point. Like it was never the only thing in my life. You weren't a stereotypical gamer? 
Well, yeah. What are you trying to say? Well, yeah. And like, no, just as far as like your balance in life, right? So I never stopped playing games because I was never like played them. You know, I never played WoW and like lost my job and spent four years in my basement. You know, like I just played here and there. Oh, you're going to go there, right? Yeah. We're talking about spending four (laughs) four years in the basement playing WoW. I, yeah. So, so I, I, you forgot about this, but I have you to thank for turning me on to World of Warcraft all the way back in the day. I don't know if friends you remember this conversation yet. World of Warcraft. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I don't even remember the context, but you're like, hey, man, wow, beta. This is really cool. You should sign up for the beta. And I did. Um, and yeah. If and I gave I, you my account, if I gave you my account, then you could blame me on this because I did give my, I had two beta, <laughs> I had two closed beta accounts that I got from Blizzard. So early, like the very first closed beta, because I was just, we had, you have connections if you start knowing people in the industry. So yeah. Even back then. But yeah, yeah no, I don't you know. played a lot of WoW. That's you. You quit TFC to play WoW, right? I'm assuming I mean, everyone did. I quit TFC and then later I started playing WoW. It made it easier to not come back to TFC, I guess. But yeah, I started in oh god, 2000. Yeah, around 2005. So that kind of lines up. And then I I quit it for good in 2009. And you didn't go back to WoW Classic. Oh yeah, I did. <laughs> oh yeah, man. No, I quit WoW Retail. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dude, we're talking about WoW Retail, bro. I've been playing WoW Classic since it came out every night. You you have been? No, you're sp- speaking like a true junkie. You're like, no, oh. I don't do, I don't play WoW anymore. Oh, I no, I, I, I'm, I, I'm a true junkie. I'm just blaming you. That's all. <laughs> you're my dealer. That's what I'm trying to say. No, WoW Classic is not WoW. That's WoW Classic. It's different, man. Yeah. It's the, yeah. It's the blue meth. It's more refined. <laughs> yeah. No, I picked up WoW Classic because I felt like I needed to get... I, I wanted to get back into it to kind of see if have I saw it differently than I did all those years ago. And I hit it hard for two months. And then I, I essentially killed um, Ragnaros, you know, the big boss at the end of the first raid tier. And I was like, okay, you yeah. know what? That's enough. Um, I'm good. Yeah, that's that's the thing, like, for me with games. And I know maybe we're different this way. We've talked about it before. But, like, when I play a game, like, I'm looking for an experience that's just new insofar as like it's a game that makes me like think in a different way or whatever you know like it's an archetype that doesn't exist in my head yet uh-huh. and when i played wow i was like well this is cool but then like i played it in the closed beta and i was like well i've kind of done everything in this game like at the time right i mean like level cap was 30 40 you know it went right. up 10 levels right. at a time through the closed beta. like i pretty much played like diablo like these are like it's this same game you just kind of keep playing and getting better stuff slowly you know the more time you spend the more better stuff you'll get but like doing that better like it's still the same thing to me like it's the same experience and wow was obviously like far and away better than the other mmos at the time yeah well, but it just wasn't a new it was everquest with like a paint of coat of paint and like you know fast travel or whatever you know like it was i don't know you see what i'm saying like it was just the same old yeah yeah, to get back to the, the point you make about the way we approach games differently, like I, I think the thing that appealed and appeals to me about WoW is got less to do with the game mechanics, but and more to do with the way that the game mechanics encourage kind of the way people connect with each other over the game. Like, um, I basically Taylor here has been trying to get me to play Dishonored for a whole year. He actually bought me the game for Christmas in 2018. Um, and I just haven't played it because I don't play single-player games. I'm really only interested in stuff that has the potential to result in some kind of uh, a human a human system where I'm collaborating with or competing against other people and we're building something that maybe is to the side of the game. Like, that's what I loved about TFC, too. Like, 
for me, yeah, of course I like playing Team Fortress Classic, but for me, after a short time, all my time in that game became about the clan that I was running. And as soon as that clan ended, I stopped playing. Yeah, I know, totally. That, it was all about, I mean, the same thing. Like, we were building something in TFC, right? It was outside of the game insofar as it wasn't like leveling your clan in two fort to level five, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like that was a big, a big part of it. It was also just like the self, the journey of the self through that game, right? Like there's so many different things to do. We already talked about offense and defense. There are a then... lot of crucibles to face like, oh shit, right. I can't bunny hop. Yeah. <laughs> like, or I need to like learn how to like rocket jump or I need to learn how to conk yeah. jump. Like you could learn how rotate. to conk jump. Like yep. conk jumping was like a whole community of itself. Like all they did was just play maps where you conk jump like that's how de in deep in depth that was you know and this wasn't like a small community this was probably like thousands of players at the time who were doing that yep. so yeah i mean that's pretty crazy but yeah, yeah i don't know i guess i guess that's where games diverged right because now if you're playing an action title you don't really have that freedom and if you're playing an rpg it's baked into the game like 100 i mean you're just following the framework that the game provides and you can't really go outside of it, at least not in the WoW version of that. Other games, I'm sure, have more. The like, Classic was a big no exception way. because their whole ethos with it was to bring back exactly what it used to be. But that makes an exception by definition. But well, your observation is correct, and I've I've struggled with this too about with modern games. I, I play stuff like like uh, Destiny and like like Warframe, and my complaint to all those games is they're they're, they're supposed to be social. Um, they're advertised as it. It's, you're playing with someone all the time, but it doesn't actually require you to collaborate. It doesn't actually encourage like like community skill sharing and building. And there's no lasting connections that come out of those experiences, like the clans we made in TFC that are relevant 20 years later. Man, that we're still here in some organizational level because of. But yeah, I mean that's. I guess that is really the difference is now since it doesn't cost anything to make one to make that or whatever you want to say. It doesn't cost anything on the organizational level as far as a commitment of learning. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to have knowledge and commit time to doing so, so that, I mean, we noticed this during TFC, right? Like in later parts of TFC, like other games were coming out where like the teams were just forming and like in Counter-Strike, you're like, Oh, like team of the week, you know? And then we started seeing that in TFC where people yeah. were just coming together to make a team and play. And then they might, that might be it. They might just be gone. And then they also kind of scramble again and, you know, another arrangement of the same 15 to 30 players would make the next four teams, you know, like they kept on just reorganizing. It was very chaotic. Yeah, that was a weird phenomenon of like um, the same loose group of players making the same things. Like there was the group of players who, who always played in the super clans. Um, there were, um, I wasn't really aware of a lot of the stuff in the lower divisions. Yeah, in the upper divisions, as I was exiting, I started to see that phenomenon take place. Well, there was teams all, I mean, it wasn't about, I don't think it, this, I don't think it mattered how well, like what division or what the skill level, I think it was, there were older teams with older people and they tended to stay together. I mean, like, like 404, 404 was, yeah, there was four or five years with basically the same core players. People even Yeah, that was joined, a very but, stable thing you guys had going. I mean, can you imagine having like, I was in TDA for three years. So, I mean, can you imagine being on a team like now, like there's, there are teams like and they're winning like the top team in dota 2 they fielded the same team two years back to back and they won both years back to back well guess what that's the first time that's ever happened in dota 2 <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah if you
you haven't watched the documentary series they do on on the uh, the title, you know, like the the tournament, the, the yearly tournament, the international. Right. You should watch it. You should watch it every year. It's really good. Maybe I'll check that the last out. Two. Yeah, my um, the last two were very good. <laughs> my wife's little brother has a uh, was at least at one time really interested in that scene, and he was going to those tournaments uh, every year yeah. he could basically. I know it's a huge, it's an enormous thing. Um, yeah, you should. To be it's honest about forty-five with you, though, minutes. I've kind of fallen out of playing purely competitive stuff in my later years. I don't know what it is. Um, something about the not feeling the need to compete like, like head-to-head like I used to. Like it doesn't mean as much to me. I notice you're still playing PUBG, though. Do you have low T? Is that why? Maybe. How would I find out? <laughs> you need to consult your doctor. Okay. No, but yeah, PUBG is still like a competitive shooter. It's still pretty fun. Yeah. I'm... I'm surprised that you wouldn't play it with us, though. Like, even Kyle was back on playing with us the other day. We got a win with him. Ish. I gave it a try. Honestly, I, I find um, the thing that matters more to me about games, uh, the whole mechanical skill component of it doesn't matter as much to me as it used to. Like, I don't care as much about being considered good. And because of that, I can I care less about beating other people. Because, and that just rolls up into being like, competition is not actually the most important thing to me. I, I tend to, to gravitate towards games that maybe have a less of an emphasis on competition and more on cooperation as a result, which ends up ends up meaning that I play games like Warframe and Destiny and World of Warcraft Classic. Um, yeah, that I surprises me, though. I would like say the same component. thing. Yeah, no, I would agree. Like, maybe you're more on the social side of it, but of what you said, though, I would basically say the same exact thing. Like, I, that's why I play PUBG, because the team play element in squads is just incredible. Honestly, I haven't given it a shot. Team. So maybe maybe if I do, I'll, I'll change my tune on it. But um, something about the play, like, tension of it always seemed a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, especially in the beginning playing it, it gets pretty extreme. Like, you know, you get the heart. There's people that stream with their heart rate monitor in Battle Royale games, right? That became a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like live on the screen in Twitch, you know? What do you think about a game like Planetside 2 compared against PUBG? Well, I mean, like the whole thing with PUBG is just that your accomplishment so like it's very hard to like it's very hard to like mimic the it's like it's the classic you drop with your team of four players you probably it's in my case it's most people most people i well it depends but most nights it's people who i know i'm sorry people i know in real life that we're playing together with Uh so we already have like that dynamic with each other but it's just really fun to drop like you drop into the same city and it's like the city is a full city and so far as like all the buildings you can go into right like that was always a thing when we were kids like man it'd be so cool if there was a game where the buildings right. weren't just all like facades and there was like you know where you, can you go could go up on the third floor look out the window look out of that window yeah right. exactly yeah. and like it'd be so cool if it was on like a full scale like you know it's like a real it's like quote-unquote real life and so far as the tactics that you would use then would be quote-unquote real so having that said that said that like just dropping with four other your your four players and then you go down parachute down into the town at the start and there's another team of four players that parachute down on opposite side of this town and then you just basically have this cat and mouse game that goes on with you four and them four which is usually resolved in a few minutes it's it's like incredible i mean that's just like the very start of the game like that's not even like the highlight of that game like you win that team fight and you're like all right what's next but like the tech the tactics that go into that scenario of like clearing a side of the building like watching sight lines and expecting them to have to cross like certain yeah. you know there's a there's a street they have to cross okay like i'm gonna hold this angle leaving one player back to watch you it's know, like sort playing of, with you know, dirt guns as on. a kid it's what you imagine it would be 
yeah, laser tag, anything. Yeah. So you're keeping your eyes, you know, one person basically stays back typically like to keep eyes and then three players are going to push an angle, you know, and then you're going to rotate behind them and kind of clean up because you know, once they have a player down that the other team is going to react. And so you kind of know, okay, they're going to have to, you know, move east from their position to try to get to the guy that we knocked instead of predict what they're going to do becomes this whole meta game on top of the meta game, you know, like where you're guessing and predicting what they're going to do. Well, if you play this game for thousands of hours, you can just basically, you can kind of like work all of that in your head while you're playing. So, and then that's just, like I said, that's just the first start in like a few minutes of the game. Now, like, you know, phase two is like getting to the circle, finding another, you know, another area to control. But the terrain is different everywhere. You know, these are huge maps, like, you know, 64 square kilometers or whatever, you yeah. know, like, so it, it's like every game is different. So I mean, like, that's, that's why Battle Royale was entertaining to me was I could play these games with my friends we'd all work together and like i said the teamwork is everything i mean you can be a great shot at making a difference you're gonna get wasted if you don't know how to predict what's gonna happen and move to a safe place or understand how other teams are going to approach a situation that you're in you know like you're fighting a team but then a third party joins you know a new challenger so sure. you have to figure out how to manage all of that and at the same time like there's all of these different systems like repairman says like there's so many soft skills in the game that you just it's impossible to describe there's all these little things you have to be managing at the time at the same time you know how much ammunition you have how much health you have right your position in the circle do you have a vehicle you know does your vehicle have gas resources <laughs> positioning yeah exactly but it and happens it, like very quickly yeah and then the shooting component actually only happens at the very end of all that stuff which is what you're yeah, complaining about they, with, with your deathmatch buddies where they can shoot right but maybe they don't do all the stuff before that yeah and then and the game has the best shooting mechanics of any game i've seen that, that. not even i mean i think that's just that's, that's just one of the things that really poked out at me a little bit i've seen about the game is the shooting mechanics look look really robust I'm, I'm wondering if you can so the one the one battle royale i actually gave a little bit of a try to when i first came out was apex I'm wondering if you could give me your impression about Apex v PUBG and why you play one over the other. I mean, yeah, it's just because of that. Apex just doesn't have any satisfaction to the the kills. Like you're just pointing and clicking, basically. So the mechanics aren't as deep. That, that's your thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's just not as it doesn't have like that level of intensity because of that. Like does it's not hard. PUBG to shoot. have classes the way that Apex does. Uh, I mean, no, not really. It's it's how you load out, right? So if you're playing solos, you just want to have a bolt action sniper rifle that you can one shot everyone in the head with. Okay. And then you keep keep an assault rifle as your you know your other your close quarter. In duos, you want to have like if you're playing with just one other player, you want to probably have one player that has that bolt action, and the other player have more of a damage dealing gun, higher DPS, right? Slow slow rate of fire, so the damage isn't very high on the on the bolt action but in squads you pretty much all sort of play you all are sort of uh, it's, you're, you're kind of all playing everything right like i i usually play more of a support role insofar as i'm staying in better cover and then reacting to how my team is either doing well like then i'll create a push you know like you're staying back with the vehicle right you get a knock you can use the vehicle to reposition because you know that has they have to spend resources to get their player back up right so in that time you can rotate with cover so you might be the one that's coordinating that push or if your team gets knocked, like I said, you're the one that's throwing down smoke to protect them while you resurrect them. It's funny. A so, lot of these verbs you're using are verbs you could use to talk about TFC. That kind yeah, of day. yeah. Well, that's and that's one of the most interesting things is like I played soldier in TFC, soldier, and like you have a RPG like in Quake. Right. But that anticipation, and I probably told you this before, but that anticipation of firing 
the rockets at targets that are moving, you sort of have to know where they're trying to go in order to hit them. Like I know you played mm-hmm. Soldier Two, so you know what I'm saying. Like yep. you're defending a you know something, and they're trying to attack you, so you're probably going to place rockets where you expect them to be or where they're trying to go, even if you're like pre-firing the ceiling when you think there's a guy that's going to conk in or whatever. Yeah, there's always a push-pull like, between trying to anticipate versus saving your magazine so you can be ready for the, the death match when it does hit you. Yeah, or just like firing one and reloading again. A lot of people did that, right? Yeah, yeah. But either way, like that skill set, though, is like it transfers in PUBG because most of the engagement distances that you're playing, unless you're like in close quarters in the same building, you have to predict their movement because you're leading the shots. The game has, you know, the air resistance. Has real bullet mechanics. Bullet physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have to lead. And as the bullet fire travels farther it slows down so it does less damage and you have to lead more <laughs> and that leading is exponential you know it's on a curve right so i mean there's a range statistic on the gun that determines this but it was very much like shooting like if you're three three two three hundred meters away it's basically like using the rpg because you're leading by like you know i don't know how you describe it on the screen but you're like pointing the shots like 10 feet in front of them right and they're running into them yeah but then once they know they're being shot at, then they start like buzzing like a bee back, you know, taking and they start juking, yeah. Trying to they start juking. Okay. But but then so you get better and you're like, well, I'm gonna shoot the first two shots because by the time the first shot gets there, the second one is already on the way. You know what I mean? Like the they're not gonna really know. So you get yeah. two shots on them while they're running. The third shot, you've got to actually pre-fire back to the right, because most good players will switch direction. <laughs> so you're gonna like pre-fire the third shot. And then at that point, you're just gonna try to anticipate where they're going. This game sounds like so, hell on new players, man. Yeah, it's brutal. It takes about 500 hours before you really are feeling comfortable. Yeah, I think it's one of the aspects that 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 kind of turned me off of trying it. But you know, hearing this pitch, I may, I may have to give it a shot. Um, well, it, it, it's really it. it's really fun to play with people. Like I barely ever play solos because it's just it's like a horror game. And people, I've been saying this for a long time. But I've seen other people saying this now that PUBG solos is like basically your whatever you want to call it, the horror genre, you know, the jump scare horror genre, because it really <laughs> is. like it, It's brutal. I mean, it's very unforgiving. In duos and squads, especially in squads, if you get shot and you're at a half wall or in a building, you can probably just, you know, you get another life. Your teammate can run over and get you back up and you'll be fine. Sure. So it's it's the coordination, though, is like a big thing. I mean, that's... It's, so like, just, it's basically that's the thing like about the TF2. game that really, really gets going is the coordination with other players. If you were just playing solo, would, would it still grab you the same way? No, not at all. I don't know. I would have never even bothered playing it. I didn't play it until first person was released. The third person, the game was all third person in the beginning, and really? it's still predominantly third person. I didn't know that. It seems yeah, odd to me. Very for a serious shooter. The, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it, we didn't. I stopped playing it. I played a little bit. I'm like, this game's kind of fun, but it needs first person. Like, this is terrible. People are just hiding on the rooftop, peering over the edge of the. Oh, you know, that's the worst. <laughs> using the third person camera and then all of a sudden someone just stands up and murders you and you didn't know they were there because they were completely silent doing so, you know? Yeah. So, well, anyway. PUBG is cool. Are there any games that you're looking forward to? Uh, I mean, 2077 is going to be a big one. I'll probably buy that. Yep. Uh, I think everyone is probably going to be playing that for the first month or whatever. Yeah, Cyberpunk is going to be the biggest thing to happen to gaming in years. Yeah, that'll be the Could you imagine being CDPR year? and putting that and getting ready to put that game out? What pressure? Yeah, they have a lot of pressure. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, it, it could bomb. Like, they had to get Keanu in it. What if the game is terrible and they just hired him to pre-sell the game? Yeah. Well, and I mean, whether it's terrible awful. or not, it was a good call. <laughs> yeah. Everyone fucking yeah, drools no, over I, Keanu. Holy shit. I know. I didn't get the big thing with that. Like, he's not even a gamer, so it's like whatever. 
No, it's this, but, it's uh, this weird internet phenomenon that occurs that they that they wisely played up, where there are certain people who are just considered to be like the angels of the internet, and it's based on stuff that they've seen them in movies and TVs and like news stories about them. Like you've seen The Matrix and you liked it, you've seen John Wick and you think it's badass, and you hear that Keanu lives humbly and. You know, he's had these horror stories in his past, but he has no scandals. So, like, everyone's just like, oh, Keanu's a god because he's a decent person who's made a few good movies. Yeah, yeah. And, and everyone and wants to be associated with him. Yeah, and he, it's, it's, yeah, there's like this aura because of that. I don't know. We'll see. It might be a good game. I'm probably, I haven't pre ordered it. Did you pre order it? No, I don't pre order stuff. Yeah, I'll have to see how it, how it looks. But I mean, I'll, I'll be playing it. I just played Fallen Order. You asked me other games, right? The Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. You still haven't played it yet. Oh, I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, I probably will start it up next month when I have some more time to work on it. But uh, I love Star Wars, so I'm definitely going to get to it. You should play it just for the story. Like, you just put it on the easiest setting and run through the game. How did you like 10, it? 10, 15 hours. No, it was really good. It's awesome. Yeah, I have this thing with games where I have a hard time playing on easy mode because I feel like I'm ignoring a part of the game. And if I ignore a part of the game, I might not enjoy it at all. It's this weird... Have you ever had right, that well, kind of inclination with the game yeah. where it's like, I have to do everything, otherwise I'm not going to enjoy it? Um, yeah, well then do it on the third, the third, the second to hardest setting is what I started and played it on. But I had a okay. lot of uh, experience with melee games, melee yeah. combat games. Chivalry I just did more now. Right. Although to be fair, I did I did do that with Witcher recently after the, the Netflix series came out with uh, Henry Cavill or Cavill. Uh, yeah, did you go back and play the game? Yeah, I jumped in. I played the first few few parts of the main story on in, in basically story mode because because I, I quickly realized that I had no desire to re-engage with the game's mechanics um, at all. But the uh, story was fun. <laughs> yeah, I would probably read the book. I don't think I would play the game. Yeah, yeah. Well, games have become a much bigger medium than they once were. Uh, you know, you you and me um, are in some ways are are the the niche audience now of players who want something that's really you can really dig into like you talking about PUBG, me the way i talk about a game like say world of warcraft or whatever um uh it seems like gaming is opening up to uh a whole bunch of other people and i don't know it's uh as much as sometimes i look at the the games getting made and and feel like they're not really for me and that kind of discourages me at times um i think it's really cool to see games taking over man yeah they're definitely there's games for everyone now like my wife and my daughter play a roblox game together i, I mean you know how i wouldn't have said that even five years ago like i mean clone my life back to five or ten years ago that uh -huh. wouldn't have been the case you know what i mean uh -huh. so you have a games positive family going on yeah yeah like we you know you have to do your life and then yeah it's like rain it's raining on sunday evening or whatever you know you're gonna be watching a movie or playing a game or whatever. It's all the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I had the actually the neat experience with um with my wife where when we first met, she was very anti games. Um she thought they were actually pretty bad for you. But I managed to get her turned on to an MMO called Guild Wars Two and Oh yeah. Kind of pulled back the veil for her on like here's what I've here's what games have meant to me. Now you get to experience it. And, and she's pulled back from that now. She's moved on to other stuff. She doesn't really play games much, but she's she gets what I like about them, which is it's really cool to have had that experience um, and to have seen that continuum through her eyes of being like, games are dumb and bad for you or games are cool and have like interesting stuff. Like she's very supportive of the work I'm doing here with um, talking to folks like you and 
um, building this community of ours. Yeah, yeah, like it, it's it's cool that she kind of got it after that, right? Because that's how, like a lot of people start from. It's very polarizing in the beginning, right? Yes, yeah, and a lot of people just don't don't get it. A lot of people, lot of people in our generation don't understand what games could be for. It was a small hobby when you and I were kids, and I think that probably I maybe you had this experience too when you were growing up that your interest in games was seen as something that you would just grow out of when you became an adult, um, or else or else you would you know um, suffer for it. Yeah, yeah, there was very much that whole oh you still are playing those games you know like my grandma asking me or something. Right. Yeah, it's it's like admitting to playing with Legos or playing with sucking on a pacifier or something <laughs> i still wet the bed right right <laughs> but yeah no. <laughs> only when i play video it, it games is, so. it's only, yeah, only when i'm playing in my bed i'll tell you there was a guy in 404 who his mom and dad were like shut-ins they were like morbidly obese and he because of this he was like a normal guy like he wasn't overweight or anything i mean he wasn't even like you know he wasn't even disabled or whatever okay. but they had him they had like a hospital bed with like uh, 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 what do you call it? like an arm that moves? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like a what's the word for that? A telescope and uh, a articulating arm. And he had his whole computer on this computer. He had like a CRT monitor and a tower on this hospital bed, like great hospital grade arm. He had it over his bed and he would play in his bed. He sent this picture to us. This was like 19, you know, 2000 or 2001. He was like, Yeah, my folks don't get out a lot, but you know, they got this extra bed. So I just, this is, I play in bed. I don't have a desk. <laughs> That's badass. I know. I was like, dude, that's actually pretty sweet. <laughs> I don't I know like, if yeah, I want to have a CRT hovering over my head, though. That's scary. You would fall and crush your dick or something. Jesus. <laughs> I remember holding around CRT monitors and LAN parties back in the day. That'll put you, if you get decent core workout, hauling those things around. Yeah, they're crazy heavy, especially later on, right? Like, they were already getting bigger and more powerful and better. And, you know, 21 inch monitors were like 100 pounds. Yeah. You're lucky. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think I had a 19 incher, um, flat screen, 100, 100 yeah, hertz refresh it. rate, something like that. Actually, CRT refresh rates work differently. Um, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, well, it redraws the different. whole image every time. Yeah. No, I had a flat LG. I had a CRT, but with like a flat screen, like you said, it was an LG. It was really good. I mean, it would do 1600 by 1200 at like 75 or 85 hertz or something. Which it took yeah. a long time for LCDs to catch up to. That's why it's funny. You're like, oh, a 1080p, you know, it was like the big deal in the late 2010s or 2000s, whatever. You know what I mean? 2079. Yeah. yeah. Like 10 yeah. years before that, I had a monitor that was basically the same resolution, just different aspect ratio. It's right. funny how things work. Yeah. I remember that having that feeling when I was crashing back into the hobby of PC gaming in like the mid 2010s um, and buying all new hardware. And I was like, wait a second. So you're telling me the, C- the, the LCDs that are out now? don't refresh as fast as the CRTs I played with like eight years ago. Yeah. What? That doesn't make sense to me. And and now like it, it's pretty common. Like the gaming monitors will have high refresh rate. People are starting to figure out that that's good. Yeah. But just now, like just recently, right? It's not, it hasn't been like, I still have 120 hertz monitor. I'm going to probably buy a new one soon, but. You seen that 360 hertz 100... reveal? Yeah. I mean, the big thing is input lag, right? So yep. that's the big, the big one when you're talking about overall latency from your hand to the monitor, to the net, to the internet, you know, the whole combination and back. Right. Latency is more important than, than refresh rate. I mean, they can be, they're obviously related, but you can have a high refresh rate and have a high latency, or you can have 
a little bit lower refresh rate and better latency. So there's a lot sure. of factors involved. Yeah. Yeah. I think the monitor I use, my, my daily driver is a 240 hertz with a sub one millisecond uh, response. So I think it's pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There, there's guys now that have high-speed cameras because the high-speed cameras are cheap and uh-huh. they're doing testing on how much, how many frames, like at 10,000 FPS, you can go down to point, you know, one point blah millisecond. So you can really tell how long things are taking to render on the screen. And that's really the best way to test them. So there's a good website. I think I've linked it in the Discord before, but you should check it out if you haven't. Just to see, like, you're probably right. Like, any of the 241s are really good, but it's kind of cool to see Interesting. all of them in a, basically in a spreadsheet, you can sort the columns by all those different statistics. Those different Interesting. categories. Yeah, because I, I always felt like the, the stats around these monitors are—they're not. There's they're, they're, there's not enough put up by the manufacturers to make great choices all the time. Like, yeah, I know it's <laughs> yeah. sub one millisecond response time, but like, how far below one millisecond is it, and how's it compared to other monitors? It's hard to tell. Um, and also, you know, this monitor has G-Sync, but what's the range that it activates in? Uh, G-Sync, I love G-Sync, Active Sync, Adaptive Sync. Um, that that technology is one of my favorite things to become mainstream in video games that was is an improvement over the old days of having to get having to just get away with v-sync and that awful input lag um yeah and there's still some lag too if you if you cap your frame rate below your g-sync monitors refresh rate by a couple of frames then you can mostly mitigate the input yeah. lag yeah that's associated with it but if you don't or if your gpu is running at very high utilization then you're going to be blown away on the input lag so yeah it's just interesting i mean that's that's my world now because i'm in PUBG, it's like any competitive shooter, you're going to have you want you know, max those FPS. Those are actually yep. important. Yeah. Lower response times, trying to get all that advantage. Yep. And if you're playing a competitive game where you've highly developed your skills, you actually notice those differences. Whereas, you know, Joe Schmo playing Fortnite um, is probably going to be fine with a five millisecond response, 60 hertz display running at 4K because they just don't know the difference. And that's the size yeah. of the gaming hobby for you right there. Yeah. That's the full spectrum, right? Takes all kinds. Well, speaking of taking all kinds, um, we've been at this for an hour and a half, man, which is awesome. Um, yeah, I have just a, a couple of fun questions to bounce off of you, and then I'll let you go. Yeah, definitely. So I was doing some research on the Inimitable Dose Pack um, on the interwebs, and I stumbled across some interesting things. Um, and I wanted to follow up with you on a couple of specific ones. Um, first, I wanted to know if you ever got an answer to the question of what... Um, <laughs> I'm just going to read this out loud. Uh, can anyone explain what part of urine generates bubbles when I pee into the standing water of a toilet bowl? Sometimes yeah, there are more bubbles than others. Could there be a dietary element to this? Did you ever find an answer to this question? No, but no one replied to me. Like, what yeah. the hell? Isn't that a good question? It's something I've never considered. Someone linked uh, an article from Buzzle.com, but it doesn't go anywhere. Oh, it's a bad link. I never even went back and checked that. It was just one day, like shower thoughts, right? I was probably like shit posting on the toilet. Yeah, it was a yeah, like, credit. Like, why, why, why does that happen? Like, seriously, <laughs> I still want to know. <laughs> I always figured it was just a function of velocity, but uh, maybe I better pay better attention to it. <laughs> Dude, no, sometimes you got like tons of bubbles, and other times it's like I'm I'm not peeing into different water, am I? It's got to be something <laughs> in the urine. I just want to know. <laughs> okay, uh, number two. Uh, I would love to hear you retell y- y- your experience of working at the drive-through Photoshop that I got to read a couple days ago. Oh yeah, do you, you really want to know that story? Hell yeah! Wait, which one was it? Uh, let's see, a drive-through Photoshop fin- finishing shop in the late '90s. A skeezy deaf guy 
working at the photo printer machine, keeping a big box of all the best of photos he printed doubles of. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, did I, is that one where I also told the story of the girl that had the abortion in the toilet in the in the drive-through photo bathroom? Uh, I don't think so. I'm sorry, I, uh, a miscarriage. I apologize. I misspoke. <laughs> she oh, miscarried yeah. a child. Into yeah, that's the, in here. Into the, yeah, that's pretty. So yeah, basically, yeah, this this girl working there who was like 16 and then had three or four kids already. Oh my she god. She was pregnant. She was pregnant and complained about chest pain, whatever, and then went into the little tiny bathroom in the tiny closet in the drive-through photo finish. Like it's just a box, right? The whole place is just a tiny box. Like uh-huh. it's just a drive-through. You know what I mean? We had like a tiny front counter. She and she's like, she starts yelling from the bathroom for the manager, who was a lady, thankfully. So like manager goes back. This poor lady, she's like half Japanese, half white, super stoner, the manager lady. She's like uh-huh. four foot eleven. She goes back in the back and she comes like running back out of the bathroom. <laughs> like, what? She's <laughs> like, ah, uh, Angela had a, you know, like, and we're like, Ugh. oh, Jesus. She's like, she's like, it won't flush. What do we do? Oh my God. <laughs> oh, that's horrifying. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I asked almost. <laughs> yeah, I feel it too. <laughs> Well, they, they had to get like the paramedics they like probably what did they get the cord and pull, pull it out oh my throw god it in the I no i don't know dude it was a bad situation oh I shit think i thought you were gonna build me up to that with you know creepy photos but you went straight to the miscarriage oh jesus uh, i'm just I'm, I just no, I didn't remember if I told that story in that post or not, so I just didn't know yeah. how far we need to go to get there. But what I'm just gonna say is I'm very glad I'm not a woman. I mean, I'm thank the Lord every day that I was born uh, with the parts that I have, or I'm I guess I'm lacking. I should say they seem a bit simpler at the end of the day, don't they? Yeah, yeah, but that was definitely the best work story I think I have. Maybe some other good ones, but that was from that place. But yeah, no, like the deaf guy was crazy, dude. He would just print doubles of anyone's shit that had like nudity or like drug paraphernalia or like this is berkeley so there's a lot of students having sex and you know yeah. things like that didn't have digital photography so but yeah a lot of drug like drug shit what a crazy 40s. time it's funny like there's just the phenomenon now of if you if you put a picture on the internet you better kind of expect it to go public because like it's hard to keep control of stuff but it's kind of funny that looking back all that time ago that you know it you were still asking you were asking someone to to help you with your stuff one way or the other and uh you know, maybe he was making copies of himself for himself, and yeah. maybe he's still exactly. at it today, for all we know. I don't know. I don't know. That business is gone. Although I guess you can work at Costco or something and make print still, or it's all automatic though. Most maybe he evolved his game. You know, maybe he went digital. I hope. I hope not. That guy was creepy. <laughs> Best not to think about. He was like Tongan. He was like he was like Southeast Asia, like Pacific Islander. You know, like this huge dude who was deaf, and he wore like dark sunglasses and inside all the time. So you never really saw his face. Creepy. But well, yeah, it was good times. On that note, this has been really fun, Kelly. Um, maybe we can reconnect again later. But uh, thanks for taking the time. <laughs> yeah, if you want to do uh, something with Kyle and uh, anyone else. Yeah, I, 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 I used to want to hook that guys. up. Great. I have all their phone numbers and stuff, so let me know. Cool. All right. It's a date. Uh, we'll catch you later. Yeah, good night, sir. Peace.